Tess Walter is an award-winning, famous author that seems to tap directly into a particular time in the country and what it's going through. He wrote The Cold Millions, Beautiful Ruins, and The Land of the Blind, many other books. He makes my book club members swoon. And he's a salt-of-the-earth type who, as you'll hear, expresses his opinions but reminds us he's an author, not an expert. Hear Walter's thoughts on the housing shortage, the housing market, loving Spokane but knowing its faults, and of course, insights into his books and the craft of writing in this episode of Traverse Talks. You, according to one of our producers, Greg Mills, who is Mm -hmm. also a fan. I'm a fan of Greg's, yeah. Oh, good. He says that you're more than a hair on the humble end and so down to earth for being, I mean, let's be honest, a famous guy. Oh, that's nice. Is that because of your dad's blue collar background? How? Why are you, you know, so approachable? You know, I think... Like, it's funny, to the outside world, it always looks like you've had instant success. But I think seven years of sending out short stories and getting them all rejected and, you know, 15 to 20 years of supporting my fiction through other means, I don't think it's a humility that I've acquired dishonestly. (laughs) Um, I think if you don't grasp humility, especially as a novelist, if you don't feel humility, not as... Uh, not as a check on your ego, but as just a general state of the universe that things are hard. They beat people up. They, um, as special as we might feel, we read other writers and think, boy, I can't do that. And so um, I feel like I'm pretty realistic. I also have also always believed that humility and confidence intersect somewhere. Yes. And so when I'm being humble, people don't realize it, but I'm actually being pretty confident. Like, yeah, this is really hard and I've failed at it. And I've also succeeded at it a little bit and I'm not afraid of either, you know? Um, and so I, I think the place where my humility and confidence, when they began to feel like they were running on parallel lines, I, I I never felt like admitting that I was afraid or that I was not as good at some things as I wanted was an admission of failure, but of, you know, honesty and reality and kind of an acknowledgement of what I, of the things that I do have done well. Oh my gosh. That is so refreshing. (laughs) Well, I mean, honestly, how many, how many of us fake it and then get scared when we're found out and don't want to admit when we don't know something? There's so much more freedom in being humble and also confident. Like, yeah, I could do that, but I won't do it very well. (laughs) Right. And, and also still faking it, by the way, the, um, (laughs) that, that never goes away. But every time that I found myself you know, bragging or, you know, name dropping National Book Award finalist into a conversation, I realized it was just all about insecurity. And that was really interesting to me to think, you know, all of your insecurities are there, you know, you're not, you're not going to do away with them. And to kind of embrace them and accept them um, for what they are. And yeah, I I think it's, terribly freeing. And for me, the other piece of it is we live in such self-absorbed, narcissistic times, partly because of social media. And to be a little over yourself and to, and to not look inward, but look out at the world, you know, just seems like for a novelist, especially, it seems like it's a much more comfortable way to work. Mm, I like that. Yeah. Anyway. 
Have we started the interview? I felt yes. like we were. Oh, excellent. <laughs> <laughs> That's so great. Yes. Well, you know, part of this podcast is, I have to tell you a quick story. So I had a chance to interview Mr. Gortler in Tacoma. His family was able to not be in the Holocaust. They all always were just ahead of the Nazis. Oh, wow. But they were able to stay together. It was very fortunate for him. But anyway, when we were discussing, he was so used to the presentation and he was ready to give this presentation. But I was like, you know, you've done so many of these videos. I really just want to know more about you and what this had an impact on your being. And he says in his wonderful little voice, what are you, my therapist? (laughs) (laughs) That's so great. Yeah, Yeah. So just many people know about your work. My girlfriends in my book club are just ecstatic that we get to chat. They have a couple questions that I'll ask you a little later, but I really want this interview with you to be more about who you are as a person and maybe a bit of your journey. Uh, what, what are you, my therapist? Hey, what are you, my therapist? Exactly. <laughs> what drew you to want to be a journalist way back when? You know, I think early on I, I didn't entirely separate what kind of writer I wanted to be, but um, I think behind every writer is a reader. And so early on, just the love of books and a book affects you in a certain way or a story. And you want to do that to other people. You want to recreate that feeling the same way it is with music or anything else. And so I think it was just being a reader as a kid. And I found my way into journalism in part because at my school, I could write for the school newspaper in eighth grade. And my sister and brother and I, I think I was about seven. We would go out to my grandparents' farm for the summers and we lived out there for a year out near Springdale, Washington, a mile from our nearest neighbors. And to keep ourselves entertained, we started this little family magazine and we called it Reader's Indigestion. It was like Reader's Digest, but indigestion. And we would, and we just loved cracking each other up and, you know, writing little, you know, stories about, you know, grandpa's tractor and, um, you know, cousin Len's DUI. (laughs) So, So just as long as I can remember, it was just loving that combination of reading and of telling stories. And then I would go through waves. For a long time, I really wanted to be a novelist as like a teenager. Uh That was my dream. And then I became a young dad at 19 in college. And so I sort of switched back to journalism because it was a way to write and still support this, uh, the family, the family. Yeah. 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 So, but I, I ended up loving both and feeling very much a member of both worlds. You do that so well. (laughs) Thanks. Yeah. The back and forth, the, the, the journalistic reporting and then the fiction writing, which leads to another question is what skills did you take from your journalistic career that then you have found works in the fiction? Yeah. I, I always want to assure people that when I was moving back and forth, that no fiction was working its way into my journalism. But there were quite a few things, I think, that come from journalism. First is a a lack of pretension about what you're writing. I mean, you write it that day, it goes in the paper. You can't wait for the muse to strike. You're less afraid of publication. Sometimes people will put their heart and soul into a poem or a short story. And to share it with the world would be to share this part of themselves that feels fragile, could mm-hmm. fracture. Um, journalists tend not to feel that way. You know, we have a we have a disconnection from the work which served me well, 
because I could write a short story, send it out, you know, um, that lack of fear of publication. But the biggest thing for me is a kind of curiosity about the world. What I loved about journalism is you were always going and asking about other people. You were always going to figure out how this system worked or that system worked. And I loved that. And I try to bring that to fiction. As much as people want to read you know, 16 novels about me dealing with growing up in the Spokane Valley and whether or not the Squire shop is going to have the genes that I want. I kind of feel like the world is such a big, dynamic, interesting place that I'd rather look outwardly at the world than write fiction that just keeps excavating, you know, me and, and my concern. Well, that is an interesting thing because when you write and then you get fans because they really connect with you and the story, the story and then you or however, you know yeah. what I'm saying. Yeah. Then you are put into this other realm of they have thoughts about who you are and they want to know more about you. Yeah. How do you deal with that? You know, that. um, it's interesting. I think because I do write things that are, feel very personal to me. And I write about characters who I have this deep affinity and feeling and connection with, but they tend to not look much like me. Pasquale from Beautiful Ruins is an Italian hotelier in the 1960s, which couldn't be further from me, but he's lived in his hometown his whole life like I have. He's um, He's a bit of a dreamer and like I am. And so I have these connections with the characters, but I think when people read them, they don't think they don't necessarily look for me. In fact, the number of people who think Jess Walter is a female writer is um, surprisingly large. So I would see that's that's like a compliment because it's your work. It's such a compliment. Right. Yeah. They, there was only one time when I found it sort of irritating. I went to the Winnipeg Book Festival and I got off the plane and a woman holding a sign that said, Jess Walter, you know, they're my literary escort. And I said, that's me. And she said, no, I'm waiting for the author, Jess Walter. And I said, I'm the author, Jess Walter. And she said, and she held up beautiful room. She said, no, it's the author of this book. And I said, that's my picture on the back. And she said, I'm pretty sure a woman wrote this. And I said, pretty sure I did. And she looked at the picture. She said, oh my God, it is you. And I said, yeah, it's me. Oh and um, But then every place she took me, the, she would say the same thing. Can you believe this is a man? And um, after a while, I started to get just a little bit of a, of a complex, you know, it's like she was questioning something else. But um, usually I love it when people say, wow, I loved The Cold Millions after I read Beautiful Ruins. I assumed Jess Walter was a woman, you know, and I, and I was right back. Thank you. Because I think that to them, it means that you're writing maybe about emotions or things in a way that they don't expect for a male writer. So I take that as a compliment. But also just the fact that the book itself lives beyond the author. And that's one of the things I love about writing fiction is it's not necessarily about me. And when people have questions, they're really sort of honest questions about how did this story come about? They want to know this book that I loved. What were you thinking when this happened? How did this character come to you? What, which of these ideas came first? And that intimacy of sharing a book with someone you love a book you give it to someone and they love it too you feel this connection with them and kind of has a little bit of a feeling of what it's like to be an author mm, that's good to know and there's a bonding too yeah. you know what you're saying to me is something we say in well in public radio which is it is and isn't about you yeah yeah it is and is not about you yeah. the work exists the work right. goes out to the people the people consume it may or may not know your name, but they remember the work. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I think the other similarity, I have a friend in radio and she always says, you may be talking to thousands of people, but you're also talking to them one at a time. Yes. Um, and I think with books, it's the same way. If I write something, it's not like you watched it on TV and it just unraveled in front of you. There's a sort of active participation in reading a book. I always liken it to I've written a piece of music and now you're playing it because you're picturing your own characters in your mind. You're saying those sentences to yourself. You're sort of playing the notes that I've written. And so when someone really likes a book, to me, it's more than I've written a movie you liked or I've, you know, because we've gone down the same road with those characters and with those sentences. And I love that, you know, so it's what it's really one of my favorite things. And it's the reason I try to answer every night note I get because those those people played my song on their piano and it's really lovely to you know to hear that they liked it. Did you know you can find us on NPR's podcasts? Just look up Traverse Talks on the NPR website and enjoy. characters you've written about that have haunted you after you've stopped writing? Yeah, you know, I, I think I think the characters that haunted me the most were the book that I had the most trouble writing, which was Beautiful Ruins, which was weirdly my most successful book. But I worked on that for almost 15 years. And so I had this vision of Pasquale and Dee, this sort of star-crossed couple meeting on this beach in Italy and and at first I thought, oh, Pasquale goes to find her 30 years later. And I start writing. I can't finish the novel. I can't find my way around it. And so the next draft, it's 35 years later because the past is set in 1962 and the present just keeps moving. And pretty soon it's 40 years and 45 years. And I'm thinking these poor people are going to be dead and I can't get them back together. And um but I had such an attachment to them. And the way I write, I sort of move back through the book and then move forward again. And so I, I kept never writing the ending of them meeting each other. And 12, 13 years after I've started this novel, I finally get to the place where they meet again. And I felt kind of breathless. I felt like I'd been carrying these two people around and... And it, it's not entirely a love story because they don't really even know each other, but they meet at a moment in time in which they both are um, needing something that the other provides. And so uh, I always say that it's not a love story between two people. It's about falling in love with a moment. And they've both fallen in love with this same moment. And now they've lived their lives and now they're coming back together, you know, to sort of celebrate that moment. And so the temporal feeling of that and then writing these two characters that I've walked around imagining writing lines in their voices you know um yeah I I, I wouldn't say I was haunted by them but I felt such affection for them mm. and I started the book uh as my mom was dying and so D the female character always sort of connected with my mom and so finishing the book was a little bit like saying goodbye to the grief that I had carried in that period you know and I'd had in the 15 years from the very beginning of starting that novel to finishing it, 
Um, my oldest daughter had moved out and gone to college. I'd had two more children born. Um, my mom had passed away. I'd lived so much life and it felt like it was all packed into those two characters and that and the scope of the novel that takes place over, you know, 50 years. Um, yeah, I felt this connection to them that, uh, I thought, um, you know, I thought we'd really been through something together. Yeah, you have. Wow. Yeah. When you're talking and describing that, it's as if <laughs> I'm wondering about creation. And here we are as humans wondering about our ancestors' experiences or what God has to do with our lives. And you as an author is a bit like God and you're taking your experiences and infusing them into this other creature in this in these words. Yeah. But uh, the depth of their characterization is felt because of your depth of life experiences. Yeah. It's funny. I've seen other people use the sort of God creator analogy for fiction, but it's funny because I, I do feel sort of uh, aware of the fullness of the life of the characters, but I feel like such a limited vessel in what I can give them, you know? Wow. And so I feel like, you know, like I want to apologize to them that their, that their creator isn't more, uh, you know, endowed with more power, you know? And <laughs> wow. One of my favorite novelists, Kurt Vonnegut, one of his later novels, Breakfast of Champions, he goes inside his novel and sets his characters free for that very reason um, at the end of the book. And it moved me so much when I was a young kid. He goes to them and says, look, I've put you through terrible ordeals, divorces and, <laughs> you know, career failure. And now I'm giving you the one thing that every person wants, free will. I'm not going to write about you anymore. Oh. And I loved that. I loved that relationship to the characters and, and to the idea of what's moving us through the world, you know. Yeah. Um, but it's funny. And when I read that as a kid, I thought maybe I would feel like a creator. Um, and I do sometimes feel like when you start a novel, you feel like, oh, my gosh, I'm creating life, you know, and you, you're filled with this sort of expansive feeling. And then after a couple of years, I always look at it. And I think, well, I made life, but it's only about an inch and a half tall and it can only do backflips. You know, <laughs> it's like like I've, I have created these little stunted uh, creatures that, um, you know, who's poor bearing in the world is limited by their uh, by the world I've put them in. The humility that you have there as a creator and a writer. That's yeah. interesting. I, I want to go back just for a second about your mom. Mm -hmm. I feel like, Jess, we don't really get to talk a lot about death and grieving. We kind of hide yeah. that in American society. What did you learn about yourself going through or still going through grief? Boy, that's... Yeah, still going through is a good way to put it. You know, um, it's interesting because it's going to happen to every human. You know, I think the two most miraculous things, birth and death, are also the most regular. And everything we write is about existence and the end of existence in some way. And what fills in the middle, you know, is a sort of mad scramble to make sense of it all. And mm. yeah, I, w I was, I guess I was 31 or 32 when my mom died. So not terribly young, but she was only 54. And so, you know, having passed that age, it, it made me think, I suppose, of that phrase from one of my favorite novels, Milan Kundera, um, the unbearable lightness of being. Um, this idea that we go through life almost imagining that we're practicing, that we are uh, 
that the next time around we'll get it right. And then one moment we realize, oh my gosh, this was it. <laughs> and when you watch someone you love, you know, suffer from cancer and die, you realize, oh my gosh, this is it. This is and it. it makes you both incredibly thankful for, you know, a sunny day and for your family and for these small joys. And also that sort of heartbreaking feeling that this precious thing that we care about is so fleeting. And um, as a novelist, that's what you have to be aware of. You have to fill your characters with those sorts of feelings in various ways. There's a great old short story by John Updike. Uh, it's called Pigeon Feathers. And it's a boy who his grandma sends him up in the attic to kill pigeons because they're making a mess of the attic. And there's just this amazing scene when he holds this pigeon as it breathes its last breath. And they've just buried a member of their family. And he has that realization oh. at, as a, at a young age that, oh my gosh, we're all going to die. Um, and then in the very next thought, he thinks, but not me. <laughs> but not me. Yeah, and just that youthful feeling of, you know, where you just almost can't believe it. And I think as we as certainly getting into middle age and, you know, you, you start to believe it. You, know, you start to <laughs> get closer to <laughs> you, it. <laughs> yeah, you don't have that feeling of a boy with a BB gun, you know, that surely that can't happen to me, you know. So. <laughs> right. You know, and was the death of your mother coinciding with the time your daughter moved out? Well, it was actually my, no, it was earlier than that, but my middle child was born the day that um, I took my mom home for hospice. Oh. Um, so took her home and my wife went into labor that day. And I remember the time thinking, this is one of those curtains drawing moments that as a fiction writer, you wouldn't even, you wouldn't write that. And I could not even differentiate between the tears, you know? Right? Yeah. And we thought my mom had a matter of hours, maybe days. We got her home and comfortable. And she was on morphine and would only be conscious for um, a few hours a day. And you know what she wanted in those hours was to hold that baby. Oh, just, and she has these big hands like I have. And I just, I can still see her. I wrote an essay called holding Ava, um, which is my daughter's name, my middle daughter's name about just my mom just wanting. And for three weeks, um, after we didn't think she would last, she, you know, she held on long enough to hold that baby. And Ava, who was very cranky would, just as soon as Grandma Carol held her, she would just quiet and oh they would my. just lie there and rest. And so it was, you know, again, the paradox of life uh, is just in front of you all the time. And the, the incredible pain and poignancy of that um, still strikes me as um, as one of the hardest times in my life and a kind of gift. And it's what you try to capture. It's what you try to give other characters in novels is the awareness of those moments existing at the same time. You were reminding me of the time that I had just opened up my mailbox and inside were two packets, one, my divorce papers, and the other, a big invitation to my cousin's wedding. And I remember just looking at it and going, God, life is so weird sometimes. Look, you've just written a short story. That's uh, <laughs> I spend my days looking for that very juxtaposition. But, well, there's one. Yeah. And I and 
and to have those at the same moment is, you know, is a great reminder. It's, it's funny if I sometimes think if, and I, I had to quit Facebook just, I, I'm not sure why, but. Because it's a horrible place. <laughs> well, I just, I just remember thinking that it was some people's, you know, posts were just triumph after triumph as if, you know, mm-hmm. look at this, I'm ahead, of, I'm ahead of life 86 to one, you know. <laughs> um, and then, and then when the, you know, when the tragedy strikes, then it's like all of a sudden it's 86 to 42 or whatever. <laughs> and uh, and that sort of scorekeeping and, you know, my gosh, your children are beautiful. And it started to feel like everyone was had, had hired themselves as their own publicist, you know, and uh-huh. um, and and life doesn't work that way. It works. You know, it doesn't work in PR releases. It really does work with wedding invitations and divorce papers coming on the same day and you know the ability to not to overcome hardship but to live it you know is is so important and cope through it yeah well or or to learn from it or to grow from it or to or or not to grow from it but just to survive it sometimes Mm -hmm. and um i feel lucky in the in the work that i have sometimes because you can just sit and contemplate those things all day. This podcast, like so many programs on NWPB, is brought to you courtesy of donors, people who watch and listen to NWPB for thought-provoking programs like Traverse Talks, people who give what they can to pay for current programs and the technology for future programs. You can join them. Donate any amount that is right for you at nwpb.org. Thank you. do you write about a place with affection, but at the same time, seeing that there are issues or their historical issues, but still loving the place? Yeah. When people ask that question, I ask them to imagine writing a novel about their family. Ah. And it's the same trick, you know? Yeah. If someone else praises them, then you you tell them just what horrible people they are. And if someone <laughs> criticizes them, then you stand up for them to the last battle you know it's so true yeah and you can't fake that kind of realistic love it's got to be realistic love realistic love it's got to be not loving it for what it isn't but loving it for what it is it's flaws and everything and it that has not always been easy for me there was a long time when I either didn't think I could write about Spokane or I wrote about it in a way that reinforced my Seattle and New York's friend's condescension about the place. Mm. And it was only when I realized that that was a kind of self-loathing and that um, everything I didn't like about Spokane was what I secretly didn't like about myself, that I found myself looking at it in a different way. Um, I sometimes feel like it's a stock that I bought in 1967 that, um, you know, where the company didn't grow for about 35 years. And now it's all of a sudden it's Tesla, you know, um, Spokane has become such a great rich place. And part of that has either involved the arts or the arts have have benefited, but it's such a great place to be a writer now, such a great writing town. And, Mm -hmm. um, so it feels really lucky and fortunate to have, to have been there during that period. The long haul. The long haul. Yes. Mm -hmm. exactly. Yeah. So the thing about writing and storytelling is, um, lessons, Mm -hmm. lessons to learn. 
I get the sense that you have, I mean, I'm going to suggest that you want your readers to feel empathy, but I'm curious, what is it that you are, are you thinking about your reader when you're writing and what you want them to be feeling at that moment or what big takeaway you want them to have? You know, not really. No. Um, I'm really just engaged in the story as I'm writing it. And usually the emotion kind of surprises me. And then I just sort of keep going with that. So this, the story I'm writing now, I have this young character who has gone to Europe to study and he's grown up in this Catholic school. In fact, he still wears his polo shirt and chinos um, (laughs) because he doesn't have any other clothes. And and he's getting a chance to go study in Italy. And he has this idea that he's going to reinvent himself. And as I'm writing about how he's going to buy this leather coat and wear sunglasses indoors and grow his hair long enough that he has to push it out of his eyes, I imagine like, well, how would that work out? And I think the line which feels entirely true to me. The problem with our fantasies is we fail to account for ourselves being in them. Um, And so here he is with the clothes and everything, but he's still himself inside. And so when you come up with something that feels true like that and connects with other times, you know, when I get invited to some fancy book party in New York and I go with this image that I'll be Um, you know, in a smoking jacket with a pipe and people will come up and, you know, laud me for things. And instead I go and I'm just me there. And so, um, so I'm often surprised when something that feels true works its way into the story. And then Mm. I think if I feel that, I'll bet other people feel that. I'll bet other people feel that universal thing. So that that's typically how it happens for me. Um, And then once I notice, oh, this is a story about you know, how our dreams and our fantasies become real, you know, and and how what happens when we realize that we can't just remake ourselves with a jacket and a haircut, you know, um, how we have to do that. And so then the story kind of becomes that. But when I start out, um, I don't usually have anything that I want. I have no agenda for the reader, but it sort of develops. And I usually find it's something that I've been thinking about that surprisingly has worked its way in if I'm kind of honest on the page. And then then I do try to make the reader feel the thing I've felt. I see. So you've been known to have your books come out right when the nation needs to learn a thing. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it, I'm asking you to predict the future with your latest work. Oh, my gosh. What are we supposed to be focusing on, Jess? <laughs> oh, boy. Um, boy, lessons from a novelist is like, I don't know, taking dance lessons from your auto mechanic. (laughs) Um, You know, the cold millions I wrote because I was so I started writing out of a deep concern for income inequality that the wealthiest and poorest Americans had reached this point that we hadn't seen since the early 1900s. And I think the parallels between then and now, uh, it was one of the reasons I named one of the brothers gig um, was uh, to sort of parallel the gig economy that we live in now. Again, that quickly falls away once the characters become themselves and the story takes over and you go in this direction, that direction. So, you know, and it's a, it's a novel about civil unrest and about 
you know, protests for workers' rights. And so to be writing that at a time when the country is erupting in, in protests over the mistreatment of African-American men, especially by police, felt again to be sort of as if I was writing a, a, an historical novel that was also contemporary. Mm -hmm. So so I definitely think my eyes are on the rest of the world as I'm doing that. But I, I also don't think that I'm necessarily predicting, certainly. You know, I, these are the things I feel like the culture needs to be aware of. And sometimes that works its way into the books. Um, I wrote a novel right after the 2008 financial crisis, or right. during it, actually. And, and again, you know, it wasn't so much that I had some great wisdom to impart, except that a homeless person moved into the bus bench across from my house and um, someone was living in my alley. And it just felt um, as if the world was fraught in that way at that moment. Mm. And so you, you really just sort of want to remind people again, that those are people and that they're human beings. I think somehow in the United States, we've found maybe not all of us, but a lot of people have found a way to blame people for their own poverty. And that's often sort of the focus of my work is, again, that sense of empathy and that um, there, but for the grace go I, that we're all so much closer to the edge than we imagine ourselves to be. We think we're safe and we have a good job and we're, you know, we're immune from those things. And if you can have someone, if you can have a reader crawl around in the skin of characters like Gig and Rye or Bit in my short story, Anything Helps, and see the world from their vantage, then maybe they will understand that they are closer to the edge. Yeah. Why is it hard for the media in general to tell these complicated stories, though, to help people live in the skin of others? I mean, is that a cultural thing? I feel like it's gotten much more difficult. I think as much as we rely on technology now, it has decreased our patience and our ability to carry a whole lot of information. Yeah. People are, you know, become famous over 26 second TikToks. You know, you used to have to make a whole song to be famous. And before that, you had to write an entire concerto to be famous now you need like 13 seconds on a skateboard you know and um and you can become famous and you know we we live online in these echo chambers where everyone agrees with us and whoever has the shortest pithiest comment wins mm. we don't allow for the other side to have a an opinion we uh we celebrate conspiracies and the villainization of other beliefs and uh, I'm really concerned about the way we take in information mm -hmm. and, and myself too. It's harder to read than it was before I had this phone where I could just bounce around and look up anything at any time. It's harder to concentrate and really bring in the deeper thoughts that come from books. And I've had to force myself at times to return to a way of thinking that is more patient and deeper. Can you walk us through that? Because I feel like there's so many of us who are going through this and don't even know it. To me, the, the recipe is really simple. When your phone beeps on Sunday and tells you you've spent four hours and 11 minutes a day on it, imagine that you've spent that many hours on it. Um, my real uh, addiction used to be watching basketball on television. 
And I had to put myself on a basketball diet and say, look, these games are all going to be the same. You get two games a week to watch, except during the NCAA tournament, then you can watch <laughs> as many as you want. And I did the same thing with my phone. I said, I'm going to get this below an hour a day. But yeah, I think you have to actively seek out those deeper kinds of thought. We may be raising generations that are incapable of that. And I that terrifies me. The thing that makes me feel great hope is every time a novel comes out, I hear from you know so many people who still take in books. You know, the death of the book has been something people have worried about. They predicted it, yeah, but it's like, mm. yeah, it's been. I think the first novel a week after um, the Canterbury Tales came out, I think <laughs> uh, some 15th century Englishman said, you know, the novel is dead, or maybe it was somebody <laughs> in Spain after uh, uh, Cervantes' novel. But however, we've always worried about the death of the novel. And to me, one of the one of the most hopeful things is that novels are still thriving that people still want that deep immersion in storytelling and in other people's lives. But we have to work at it. Oh, this is so hard. It's so hard. I have a question from one of my girlfriends that I just have to oh, ask. Oh, yes. This is from the book club. Right. Um, oh, I love talking to book clubs. <laughs> is there, I would want to know, is there wine at this book club? There's a lot of t wine and discussion about things other than the book that we're supposed to discuss, which is probably all book clubs. Yeah. Uh, Mariah wants to know your perspective on the history of Spokane and how it has historically been a place of transience. I'm looking for better opportunity. Does that look the same now or has it changed? I think Spokane, certainly at the turn of the century, the time I read about it, was a transient place. If you think about it, seven major railroad lines converged in this one place. So you'd come through the high line of Montana, you'd come through southern Montana, you'd come through Utah. All these rail lines would pinch together in this one place because you have to go around lakes and everything, and then they'd spread back out. So. To come north was to funnel through Spokane. So 1890s to the early 1900s, the railroad is the internet. The whole world is connecting in a way it hasn't connected before. And they're connecting through this place. Um, the incredible wealth of natural resources, mining, timber, agriculture, Spokane lies at the intersection of all those things. And because of that, because three different train depots, um, this is where itinerant workers would hop off the train and look for work. So in the early 1900s, there were thousands of what they would call hobos, which was mm -hmm. for hoboys, a boy carrying a hoe, hopping on a train, looking for farm work. And, and so much of downtown Spokane was built to house them. And it really did color the beginning of the city. I think now, you know, we have a different kind of itinerant population. We have families who have fallen out of being able to afford housing. We have mm -hmm. people with mental illness for whom the system has failed them. We have people kicked out, you know, institutions like foster care and prisons that are churning people out. Um, but it's a similar thing in that we have these people who slip between the cracks. Mm -hmm. And I think one of our big failings in the United States is seeing people without homes as a local issue. That is a national problem. It's everywhere. We have turned people's homes into their only valuable asset. Your only involvement in the middle class is to own a home now. So of course the value is going to go so high that it's going to price people at the bottom out. And as long as we treat shelter like a financial instrument, we are going to have this incredible homelessness issue. It's not a bug. It's very 
very much, you know, part of a system that we've created. And, you know, in, in 1907, you had people who were desperate for work, who would take to the rails, who would sleep outside. Um, that isn't the situation now. In many ways, I feel like it's crueler now because we are denying people of the basic shelter that they need because, you know what, that space is too valuable for me to put affordable housing on. Oh. No, no one wants it in their neighborhood. We want our housing prices to keep going up. We imagine we're in, um, you know, a, a kind of endless carnival ride where our houses can just keep becoming more valuable. And what we don't understand is what that's doing is turning an entire you know, percentage of the population out into the street. Um, so that does not answer the question about Spokane, except to say, I don't think you can isolate Spokane from the rest of the country. Right. Uh, as far as Spokane's history, I think it is very much a place, a working class place, a place of, you know, that certainly lagged behind Seattle and Portland uh, economically. But I think much of that's changed. Again, I think I think the separation between places isn't what it used to be. I agree. You were on track to say something about what ails the country. D- does it come back to greed and money and capitalism? <laughs> I mean, I, uh, possibly. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's funny. We get all caught up in capitalism. Is it socialism? Is it communism? We can regulate capitalism. We always have. We always do. You know, pure capitalism would be drive your car 600 miles an hour, you know. But we say, no, let's regulate the way the highways work. You know, there is no one uh, except for a few strict libertarians who say there should be no regulation. To me, we could regulate, you know, we could regulate housing prices. We could insist that cities and states in the country devote a certain amount of space to affordable housing. We could find a way to battle nimbyism so that, you know, if someone wants to put a shelter in your neighborhood, everyone in the neighborhood doesn't complain about it. If we don't take care of the problem, it will continue to haunt us the way it does. So again, looking to novelists for solutions is is never right. But (laughs) I do think the perspective that a novelist can bring is an historical one. And, um, and one may be sort of geared toward human nature. I think this comes back to earlier in our interview when you are comfortable with being humble but also confident, so the ability to absorb all the grays, the yin-yangs. Yeah. yeah. That speaks a lot about your character, Jess. Yeah, yeah. Jess, thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, this was such a pleasant conversation. I hope you have a good rest of your day. I will. Thank you again. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Spokane native son Jess Walter, author of The Cold Millions and many other great books, all of which you can find at your local independent bookseller. I hope you've enjoyed the conversations on Traverse Talks. I'm Sue Ann Ramella, and I'd like to say thanks to producers Michaela Fox and Greg Mills, editors Mary Ellen Pitney and Emmy Wilbert. Thanks to intern Gabriel Del Rosario and special thanks to Gigi Yellen and Scott Leadingham for helping to make season two of Traverse Talks possible. And if you are a member of Northwest Public Broadcasting, thank you very much because your financial support is making these local productions possible here at NWPB. And a big thanks if you downloaded and shared Traverse Talks episodes with your friends and family really helps. We're looking forward to season three.